Hi, this is Will Roy. This is Dole. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Kevin. This is Jake Cook. Hi, this is Thomas DePaulo, and you're listening to The Green Box. On this episode, Will tells us his theory on the intended progression of Delta Green campaigns. After that, we grapple with reframing program missions as players feel more proactive. And to wrap things up, Jake inspires us to ask whether putting players' bonds in danger is a good idea or a great one. So we talked a little bit about how the cowboys are kind of a dying breed uh, and how it's certainly possible that the only way to get new cowboys is for disenfranchised program agents to realize that the jig is up and join the, you know, create new cowboys. But I think, Will, you had some interesting thoughts on that a little more coherent. Uh, I did. Yeah. Um, You described, I think it was you, Kevin, described uh, kind of a difficulty curve between the the program and the group. Is that right? I mean, you mean easy mode and regular Delta Green mode? And I think you're onto something with that. And this is an idea. This is a a thought that I've had for a little while since I started uh, going through the draft of the handler's guide. So I have this theory that there is a sort of intended progression in Delta Pain, which is, and what got me thinking about that was when you described the program as easy mode. And I was thinking, yeah, it is a little bit easier. It does require uh, a little bit less uh, in the way of planning and paranoia than being completely on your own as the illegal conspiracy. And then I started thinking, like, Melon, you and I have often half-joked about the fact that the program is definitely not the good guys and are essentially, in, in all but name, Majestic 12. Um, so I got thinking um, in the wake of scenarios like Viscid, where agents can dig into the history of the program and Majestic and start wondering if they're really working for the good guys, if perhaps it is not intended that at some point agents of the program discover who it is they're working for and what they're doing and start to question things and then uh, either break off, go on their own, or are approached by someone from the other Delta Green and recruited. If perhaps the intended progression is not that that, uh, that, that agents start out with the program, become disillusioned, and start working for the outlaws. Uh, I think we should talk about what you mean by the word intended because in the Handler's Guide, they say that they never recruit from each other at all, but I think that's bullshit and I like your idea better. I wouldn't say that. I would say that uh, this hypothesis, uh, the initiative is squarely in the hands of the agents, of the players. Because I think, Melon, you're right. I think the, I think um, Acel is smart enough not to start poaching agents from the program because they are very much you know, aware that that would piss people off. I also got the feeling that, that while both of them don't like each other, they know that the alternative is worse. And they, you know, kind of agree to disagree on their methods. Yeah, my understanding there's a sort of a, a sort of a gentleman's agreement to stay out of each other's way. Like a cold war. Yeah, which is fun because every time we've run scenarios with that involve the two, it has always, always, always ended in bloodshed. Usually, immediately. I think that says more about the people we play with than anything else. Potentially, but perhaps it also highlights that this the way that it's set up currently, where the two just ignore each other completely or deliberately avoid interacting is less interesting than the alternative possibilities like the ones you're describing. Well, the direct, the sort of direct um, confrontations uh, between uh, Delta Green and Majestic 12 of the old era were, were interesting and tense. I mean, uh, Convergence, Victim of the Art, some, some great fucking stuff in there when the Majestic Kill Squad shows up and everybody and everything goes to hell. I also think there's kind of this, I think there's this uh, assumed rule 
that either your game is a cowboy game or your game is a majestic game. And I think I, I may have said this before on other sessions, or but I, I feel like, like for me, I, I like the style structure and I like having the program support. So I tend to just kind of assume a little mix of both. Uh, and I think you could do some interesting mixing without having it be a firefight. For example, in uh, like if Star Chamber, if you were a program investigating a cowboy group that had been captured or, or were being interrogated, could be an interesting twist to that. Isn't there a shotgun scenario where the centerpiece is uh, an agent of the program who is also working for the, for the outlaws? I vaguely recall reading about this. Uh, if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. I, I will. I will say that in, in one of the many scenarios I have kicking around at the at the you know point point one stage, I have the an idea for a cowboy and, and program link up, but I can't haven't haven't yet figured out a way to do it that doesn't immediately result in bloodshed with most players. So it's. Uh, it has not yet gotten off the ground, and that's definitely a problem that can happen. Uh, but I also I do see I do see you know the the type of people who would be attracted to fighting the mythos monsters and doing the right thing are not the type of people who will put up with much bureaucracy. And I think even the program in trying in, in trying to be minimal bureaucracy is going to have some bureaucracy. There's got to be you know some report reading funky somewhere or some comms weenie somewhere that just add a level of you know requisition nonsense to it. And you know. If I was out there putting my life on the line fighting the Shoggoths, I would only need like one thing to piss me off before I was like, you know what? Join the other guys. I don't have to fill out fucking paperwork for the other guys. Well, I mean, we do know that uh, there are the, the higher levels of the program are, are significantly insulated from field work for very good reasons. Those reasons being the corrosive nature of the mythos on the human psyche. And um, given that, it's not without a beyond the realm of possibility to assume that perhaps the uh, the suits upstairs who don't really know a fucking thing about what goes on the down here on the ground, man, about how they just get in the way. Yeah, my daddy could get me on the Coast Guard. I never had to work goddamn down there. Life. Yeah. I mean, I believe that even if your agents do have disparity with the program, finding the outlaws is a big problem because that's exactly what they want uh, you not to do. You know, I, I do think it'd be really easy if you were in a room and you want to find the outlaw, the cowboys in the room. Like, all you got to say is one of the many shibboleths that exists in the Delta Green universe, you know, and uh, you'd immediately get them to out themselves. Like, anyone anyone here seen the yellow sign? Ah, got, got one. Or... Look at look at that shotgun over there, you know, like the guys who like go for their guns and act all series are the outlaws. Found them. That's a whole mob joke. How can you identify the mobsters in the room? They're the ones sitting in the corners. <laughs> I like that. If you were going to pick a, a handful of official scenarios to run to kind of form this campaign from programmed outlaws, do you know what that would look like? I can suggest, and I suggest... I say this because I was in the game that Will I was I was in several games that I'm pretty sure Will is thinking of when he talks about this. There are several scenarios that suggest in not so uncertain terms that actually the program is evil. So the scenarios I'm thinking of, and I think Will has that mentioned this, Viscid is a huge one. Uh, another one is Observer Effect, where you can't you can't investigate March technologies because the program tells you to stop. Another one is Wormwood Arena. Which I'm pretty sure, is, since it's on the Patreon now, we're allowed to talk about where it explicitly says if you turn the statue over to the program, they try to weaponize it, and then it immediately breaks out of the lab, and you have to fight it again. There is a sequence of scenarios that that is in, that you could run in which every time the organization you are working for are not just the bad guys from the perspective of they just murder innocent people for very 
very slim reasons, but also from the perspective of they have become the mission. And that's interesting because I uh, I can't find it right now. I don't know where it is, but there is kind of like I mentioned earlier, a suggested timeline. So just to kind of run these scenarios in this order. And I think that that's done with the assumption that the program are not the bad guys. So you lose those bad guy reveals like in Viscid, but you gain kind of interesting. If you, if you look at the set of scenarios without that need in there, your work it works pretty well. It might have been on Patreon. Anybody remember where that was? What makes the program evil in Viscid? Uh, the fact that they are joined at the hip to a criminal conspiracy dedicated to weaponizing the unnatural. Okay, I thought it was all about Gavin Ross. Yeah, guess that is. Most of Viscid is you uncovering the shell companies that feed money to Gavin Ross and him getting up to whatever he's up to. So when we were thinking, talking about this early, I had a preliminary or not preliminary a point i want or a thought i wanted to get across about an idea for a campaign i had that actually worked with both of these ideas about the outlaws being good and the program being evil so basically my idea was you have your agents who are not members of delta green they get recruited by who they think is the uh the outlaws however who they've actually been recruited by is the program and they're Within one of the research projects, projects bleh, of the program, uh, to create a outlaws type, almost disguise for program activity, investigating March technologies so that you would be dealing with scenarios mainly about what March is up to or how it's, how the unnatural is becoming involved in big business and stuff like that. You would be organized into whatever cell you would like, but eventually you would meet the real cowboy counterpart of your other cell. Yeah, that was uh, that was a plot point in Eclipse Phase. That in Eclipse Phase, the two organizations, uh, the Cowboys are, or, or Delta Green is Firewall and Majestic is Ozma. And in Delta Green, in Delta Green, in Eclipse Phase, one of the suggestions for what the relationship between the two is actually that one of them is the house cleaning apparatus of the other. That either Project Ozma is Firewall's Black Ops team or Firewall is Ozma's Black Ops team. And you just tell the agents that the other guys are the opposition so that they don't hesitate when it comes time to kill them for doing something that violates the rules. All right, guys, I found the sample timeline that Shane Ivey put together in the uh, preface to Night of the Opera. He recommends uh, starting with Reverberations, which is an introductory scenario, good place to start. Then do Viscid, uh, Music for a Darkened Room, Extremophilia, Star Chamber. Then uh, end it with Observer Effect, which is a particularly cataclysmic adventure. I disagree with that timeline. So remind me why it's in this certain order. So th- these are suggested or in a suggested order from Shane Ivy, which which does not assume that the program are the bad guys and just wants to build some tension in terms of, you know, you start with kind of an easier scenario, then you get kind of creepy, and then you get kind of like the whole world blows up. Isn't that lab in Extremophilia also owned by March Technologies? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's owned it, well it's owned by it's operated by Benthic, which is owned by a shell company that is owned by March Tech. I don't, are they? Yes, the the secret lab that is making the Migo juice that's infecting the baby and all those other people are that secret lab is from a sample stolen from the Butte Pit where there's a big old Migo fungus. But once again, it's the same. Yeah, which it, that's even better if they're all of them attached to the same evil conspiracy and the evil conspiracy you are told time and time again we're not allowed to touch that. 
It's like how in old Delta Green, there was a bit where you had to go to New York and they would tell you, um, you can't fight Stephen Alzis because we have a truce with him. And that was the part when I read Holy War that I thought, how many players are going to go completely off the rails here and think that this guy's compromised and we're never going to get to the rest of the scenario because you just told them, hey, we're actually on Voldemort's side. He's actually, you know, we sort of came to an understanding. Now go deal with this completely different thing. Anyway, this order here, uh, the Shane Ivy order, is actually almost exactly the opposite of the order that I would want to run these scenarios in. So I'd start with Observer Effect, which I believe was the first of these to be published, if you don't count Music from a Darkened Room. In Observer Effect, it's possible for the agents to dig into the Hollowbeam Array and discover the link to March Technologies, upon which they receive a stern phone call from the case officer and are told to fucking drop it, full stop. Then in Extremophilia, much the same thing happens. They can dig into Benthic and find the link to March Tech. They get a little more info here because the case officer doesn't just say, you know, drop it and it's up. The case officer goes, look, I don't know what you've been digging into, but I have been instructed by the folks upstairs to tell you to knock it off because these March guys are connected. So it's a little bit more intel. And then in Viscid, you've got the same kind of setup again, except in Viscid, you have a lot more clues because Dr. Greaves fucked up. And those clues can lead the agents to start digging deeper into March technologies and eventually have a face-to-face with none other than Gavin Ross himself. So there you go. That's uh, almost the exact opposite order that's given in A Night of the Opera. Uh, I'd finish with Viscid because Viscid is where the agents finally get the chance to sink their teeth into March technologies and actually meet somebody from the old days of Majestic 12. I would certainly never start with Observer Effect, though. And this may be a shitty reason, but just because of the amount of sand loss and shit like that it causes. Well, Observer Effect and Viscid should both be near the end. I agree that Viscid should be last, just because Viscid also has a lot of places where the players could easily get themselves killed if they're not careful. I mean, if I'm being honest, if I was starting with Observer Effect, I would run it a bit differently. But I would start with Observer Effect beginning to get that initial taste of program, or I might switch around the uh, the order in which they get more or less intel with Extremophilia. So I, th- I think for like an expert mode, you want to run a Delta Green campaign that involves looking into the conspiracy, um, the, the Will the Great uh, timeline w- w- would work. You can use my actual name. My name is all over the shotgun scenarios that I publish. Can- Canadian Will um would be the one way to go but i think if you were picking this up kind of new or you, you were maybe a new handler or had a new group of players and you wanted to go based on you know intro and then get a little more cataclysmic each time and did not worry about the big conspiracy then i think it's a it's a solid solid time i disagree that observer effect is cataclysmic because if everything ends then you just you reset to the timeline where the holobeam array never existed yeah but your sand loss is still there it's cataclysmic for the characters. I think the most, I think the most uh, damaging one in terms of sand loss here is actually music from a darkened room. So, so anyway, I think the real, the real key here is that there are many ways to run telegram scenarios. Decide on what your meta plot is and go from there. Or here's a thought: don't decide on a meta plot because that's the what um, World of Darkness did, and look how it turned out. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of letting a meta plot kind of emerge organically. Yeah, that's what that's that's the patrician choice. I think <laughs> the patrician choice. Yes, the patrician choice. You got to be born from the founders of the city of Rome to make the patrician choice. I'm going to pretend this makes complete sense to me, and the reference didn't go in my head. Well, the reason you don't know what a patrician choice is is because you're a plebeian.
there was a discussion in Discord the other day about um, official requisitions and how official requisitions are actually the least effective way of getting stuff because they take too much time. And so my thinking was actually, I eventually came around to this idea that well, the program has the entire intelligence community of the United States government at its disposal. The reason the reason that official requisitions are useless is that we, very often players are being called last minute to an operation. Maybe the program with all its intelligence gathering capabilities should have some more lead time. Like program games should be more proactive rather than reactive to outside events. And I think we already do this a little bit because Melon, you came up with a really good idea that's been used in a couple scenarios that the program actively forges and circulates occult documents and sells them on the deep web and then anyone who buys them is going to get a knock on the door. Yeah, that's a uh, one that I have used a couple times. I wrote up the, um, I wrote one adventure that did it. I used it as a lead-in to a published uh, scenario from Call of Cthulhu, actually, that I adapted Delta Green. And then I also wrote the um, NPC who makes the forgeries. And so I think that um, that's definitely one way that you can make Delta Green the uh, the program game more, uh, like you said, give them more lead time by having it be an operation that Delta Green deliberately undertakes rather than the, I think the typical Delta Green published module in the typical scenario that we run is you basically have about 20 minutes to get to the crime scene. Right. And that makes, that makes perfect sense when you're the outlaws, when you are just kind of scrambling together or you're back in the nineties and the cowboy years, uh, trying to see who's actually still around to get there. But I think for the program, allowing, making it seem at least like the players are picking and choosing their missions, or at least the case officers are, that uh, kind of fits the fiction a little better because one, the players don't know that the program is still essentially just parasitizing off different agencies. It makes the program feel much more powerful and all-reaching. And it also lets them, uh, like I said, it lets them kind of be more particular about the equipment they can bring is now they're not as pressed for time and official requisition can come into play more easily. Like a scenario seed I have that I'm working on in this vein is that uh, the program has identified one of its members who's off the grid and he doesn't know he's finally been tracked down. So the players don't have a strict time limit on when they need to get to him. They're just told he's here. You need to get in extraordinary rendition his ass and bring him back for questioning. And so that kind of it flips the script because then the players are able to choose when and how they. That's a good idea. I think my one concern with those types of scenarios is that when you give the players a lot of time to do something, then you get into resolution dithering and extensive shopping trips and all the other stuff that we uh, complain about on this show, where they don't want to make a decision, want to continually spitball ideas and acquire ever more esoteric items to... Well, the thing is, I would say he's not just sitting there. I would say there's one or two other factions in play that also want him for their own ends. Like, uh, for instance, for this one, maybe the cartels. He's sold some guns to the cartels, but they were unnatural magic guns that ended up killing the people who were using them, and now they're coming back for revenge. So you need to get to him before the cartels do, and he spills everything. Okay, but in that circumstance, there's a time pressure there. So that seems kind of like we're back at square one, where there's a time pressure, and the the, the agents are disincentivized from using official requisitions. I would, well, I would say it doesn't, that timeline doesn't really start until they've got their boots on the ground, so they have some time to prepare. 
but it's really just if it devolves into dithering, then you can have like an informant or a new bit of intelligence come up the wire saying, hey, we know these guys are also interested. You should really get a move on. Okay, so in a sense, then right instead of having a clock, what you would do is you would hide the clock. Right. It's not like now from the meta game perspective, what do you do when your players wise up to that and realize there's a hidden clock? You know, three or four games down the line when when they're presented a scenario with a clock, they go, oh, I bet there's a hidden timer. We'd better uh, rush in without using any positions. That's a good point. I probably need a more elegant way of doing it. But the way I'm thinking is that there would be sort of a distinction between intel gathering time, like time when you get the briefing and the time you prepare and then the time when you are actually kind of on the ground in whatever area looking into it. So you'd sort of signpost to the players that they know like, okay, you, you have this much time to get your act together before the clock starts. Yeah, I think let's say let's say a major requisition is a month or a week or so. Let's say you have a couple of weeks to prepare for it. And then that means you have a certain amount of requisition due and anything else you're going to have to it's going to come in midway through the mission. So maybe a better way of putting it is that there's it's not that there's no time pressure, but there's a lot more breathing room in terms of time pressure. And then the players can use that for various things. I don't think there should ever be a hidden clock. I think that there should always be some kind of signal to the players that there is a reason to hurry up because the big problem with any game based around espionage and tradecraft and shit like that is that it is oftentimes very difficult to make the machinations of all the other factions visible to players it often feels as though you can't actually tell whether your actions have specific consequences or why things are happening because you're dealing with people are doing everything they possibly can to keep their behavior a secret and it's extremely unsatisfying from a player perspective because it means that you can't tell what effect your actions are having you can't tell why things are happening and i think the um, hidden clock is the apotheosis of that of prepare you prepare to do something you make a, an elaborate plan you arrive at the destination and you find that everything that you just spent all your time doing is pointless because someone else went and resolved the mystery while you were still out. And the way that you mitigate that is by signaling early on that there is someone else, there are other factors in play, there are other factions who are towards goals that are opposed to your own. Well, yeah, I'm not really advocating for that. I just think it's an important thing, because I know that Will asked earlier, how do you know uh, what, what happens when your players always start behaving as though there's a hidden clock? And my counter to that is there shouldn't ever be a hidden clock. And I'm now going to have to go back and look through all my scenarios to see if I did that anywhere. In a game I ran recently, Jake decided he was going to bring his only bond with him on the mission, which, of course, I was completely in favor of because I thought that could go horribly for him. Why did he decide that? What was the what use did the bond have on this mission? Uh, the bond was a kind of canine partner at his job uh, in the U.S. Army, and so I think he he wanted to test out Melon. Uh, house rules about having a canine but i just thought that was really funny and i think you're gonna bring your only source of stability into a potential combat zone with you yes this is a great idea how did it go and no uh he nearly died actually the bond was untouched like the dog was perfectly fine but it made me think of something that's also in the text of ex oblivion the scenario on dennis detloy's patreon where it says if things get too hot the antagonists might 
kidnap uh, the players' bonds in order to coerce them into action. And I was wondering what you guys think of kind of applying pressure to a player's bond to try and get light a fire under their ass. So I'm, I'm going to come at it from a purely mechanical perspective. Uh, in, in the game, bonds are this mechanic by which you offset sanity loss. And there's a player who I've, I've created this player character. I want agency over my player and the decisions I've made in character creation, such as which bonds I've decided on. So if the handler is going to take away that agency and use one of my bonds with no, I guess, no consent. So it's not like if I bring the bond willingly, that's one thing, but the bond is just kidnap. Um, that's fine. And it makes a great story, but I feel like at the end of the game, the home scene you should have a ability to like replace that bond in some meaningful way or else it's like what is my character sheet my character sheet doesn't matter you can just take whatever you want from me for no reason and that's a purely mechanical way of looking that is definitely the stereotype of why people in most rpgs make characters that have no social connection or friends or things like that outside the party because if you tell the gm that your character has a bond who is not on screen in most other games that person's gonna end up dead that's the reason why people don't want to do it is because of the stereotype of if you mention that you have a family off screen the family gets killed if you mention that you have you know a sibling the sibling gets kidnapped and you have to deal with it so that's one of the reasons why so many D characters are you know orphans and loners you know and i'm almost saying we're like separate out the 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 role play part of the bonds with the numbers like my character sheet has three bonds at 10 value so i essentially have 30 points of sanity offsetting to play with you can use a bond you know my wife can come into the game and she can get murdered and it can be horrible at the end of the day i should still if i haven't chosen to use any of these 30 sanity reducing points i should still have them if even if my wife's dead i should be able to replace it with something else like uh another bond i've made in the mission or something like that i uh I think that's fine. I'm not necessarily of the opinion that, you know, there should be no consequences without uh, player choice. I'm usually I'm usually in that camp where I want things to be the result of a choice that someone makes rather than uh, essentially scenario fiat. But at the same time, I don't I think that it's important. It's important that there be consequences for something like that if it does happen. Uh, I've never read the scenario, so I have no idea the context it's used in. I will say that um, I think it would probably have the desired effect, but I think you have to be very careful when you steal stuff from players or when you threaten players, because uh, one thing that I've learned from lots of running RPGs is that players generally don't get scared when you threaten them, unless they're role-playing really hard. Most players see a threat as an overture for a fight rather than something they need to take seriously. And that's in both systems that are based around fighting a whole lot and in systems like delta green where you're supposed to take it seriously when someone says you know you need to do as i say or this bad thing will happen the players are thinking uh you need to do what i say and what i say is die when i shoot yeah i think in the context of the scenario even if you're not scared of it even if you're uh enraged by it you still have to physically go to this place to get your loved one back and from what i read i would i would qualify this scenario as one where it could easily end in a tpk so the guy whose bond has been taken might just be killed anyway as a result so we at least this if you say uh, say someone's wife is captured and they're a bond and then that wife is shot or injured during the uh, game would you allow and the player suffers a sanity would you allow them to project onto that bond well she's she's toast anyway so i may as well use as much as i can here uh, I don't know, actually. That's a good question. I mean, I, feel, I guess I feel like if, if they're just injured, then the bond would suffer because they'd be like, what the hell did you drag me into? But I mean, if they died, you know, 
but at the same time, if if they if they're not if they're dead, you don't, may not know they're dead, so you can still project it and save your sanity loss. I don't know. It's kind of oh, a conundrum. I kind of like that actually. That you can't believe they're dead, and so you end up wallowing in all the all these memories you have together. I might allow that. Again, from a purely mechanical perspective, I would allow it just because I'm. Uh, I, I, this is one of the few times I fall into the Mellenberg camp of less odd rules is better. So having a special use case where bonds involved in the situation can't be damaged or can only be damaged at half value or something is just a ridiculous ad. Well, that gets... We're getting into the nitty-gritty, actually. That raises the question of what if you project onto that bond and then you break that bond from hell, <laughs> from all the points you project and that triggers another sand test. No, that's why you should have more than one bond. Now, I think... So going back to the original use case here, which was um, a, a canine handler with a canine... One, I know that that class, I think, only gets one bond anyway. So you're kind of stuck bonding to your dog. It's not It's not a It's not a character class. Yeah, it's a house rule Melon came up with. The purpose of bringing the, the it's it's a really bad idea to bring the dog with you on the mission. But I wanted to make a bond that people would actually use in Delta Green, like bring like like actually interact with on screen instead of just saving it for the vignette. But also, I didn't want to make it an actual NPC that then you guys know that my philosophy when I write games is that the players should do things and the NPC should should be. If, if, if the NPCs are doing things that should be neutral or antagonistic to the players, then having the NPCs be overly helpful means then you have a situation where the scenario might just get solved off-screen by the actions of non-player characters, or you know it might just devolve into one of those things where the solution is to turn the right people in the right direction, and then the NPCs do everything. And I don't find out of those very satisfying. So this was an attempt to make a bond that was more um, interactive on-screen, but would not overshadow the player but rather act as a compliment and at the same time it is a bad idea to take the dog with you into a danger zone because the dog is not that effective in actually fighting and very likely to be killed if it gets in a fight because it depends what what type of dog was this this is the type of dog listed in the handler's guide so you can type up an email to shane ivy and dennis detwiller at all adam scott glancy and ask them what type of dog is listed in the handler's guide does it have a sniper rifle or (laughs) on chief's sheet i don't know if it was just flavor he said it was a german shepherd no no i mean sorry when i say type i mean like is it a human remain dog is it a drug dog is it a bomb is it an attack dog? i guess 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 what type of dog dog is is it it is the type of working dog listed in is the handler's guide. Is it just listed as working dog? Like what? It is listed as dog. <laughs> Hang on, let me check this. The sound of PDFs opening everywhere. Yeah, you can take a look at the uh, at the, the document I wrote and tell me what the stats there uh, you yeah, think it doesn't represent. Say. It's an Australian Shepherd, actually. Yeah. Well, then that is a, I would say that is a failure. Uh, the game system to get into the minutia, in which case the player probably should. No, I think that the player should take a cue from the designers and say that it's not but relevant. It's super relevant. Well, I don't care about. I mean, it, so like it if, if a player said, "I shoot them with my gun," and you said, "What kind of gun?" and I said, "It's a gun." I mean, yeah, you. you no, they you could say it's no, a, no, no, a medium no, no. pistol, they, and that's but that's the almost a gun, and the type doesn't matter. But the type does. Matter. That's what you're saying with what type of working dog. Okay. But you're 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 on a podcast with Will, and Will is very strongly of the opinion Will that doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter if I shoot someone with a light pistol or a heavy pistol. I'm pretty sure he said that before. I'm pretty sure he said he'd rather have all the pistols consolidated into one because everyone just takes the heaviest one anyways because they want more stable. damage. That's, that's fair. Plus, um, isn't it mostly shot placement, not the size of the cartridge that matters? Once you get well, past like, the mouse using calibers, the twenty-two, aka the assassins, will hit you and travel up your bones and blow <laughs> your brains out. Well, it, it it'll ricochet inside the skull. There was one Everyone other knows. thing I was thinking of. There was a conversation a couple of days ago. One of our listeners, Zomner, was talking about making pregens for a game he was going to run for a home group, and he wanted to know if he should 
uh, predetermined bonds for all the pre-gen characters. And Jake's suggestion was kind of create an archetype, like academic, rather than anything more specific than that. And his point was maybe someone will make a herpetologist if it's a snake monster you're after. And that'll come in handy. And I was thinking, yeah, but if you bring in a herpetologist bond on a mission where you're hunting a snake person, that's not going to be very good for their sanity. So I was wondering, do you guys consider that sort of thing when you're making bonds for a character? I think that if you require the player to consider the bond sanity in a mechanical sense, then that now either doubles, triples, quadruples, or quintuples the amount of paperwork the player is doing, because now they're not only tracking their own sanity, they're tracking the sanity of a constellation of NPCs. Then they have to determine a block of stats for those NPCs. Well, I wouldn't come up with a whole block of stats. I would just saying, should the player, should the bond's sanity be shaken and that turns out in damage to the bond? Oh, absolutely, Yes. Uh, damage to the bond, maybe, but there should definitely at least be a suggestion that you are putting your friend in danger and turning them onto something bad. Because there's n- there's not, I think, a defined mechanical consequence for it. Even the one the one that has someone the bond making sanity is if you have a bond with a therapist and your therapist gets a sand test, but that doesn't actually affect the strength of the bond. It just says that you're harming an NPC. So I think I think it would be worse for a herpetologist to find a snake person than say another type of scientist because they have such intimate knowledge of, the, of how things are. To have that ripped away from them is is extra damaging. Okay, but consider consider this. If I'm a whale biologist and I, or like a, a, an ichthyologist, and I find a, a deep one, or, you know, let's say I'm a physicist and I find a perpetual motion machine, am I upset or am I over the fucking moon? I guess it could, I guess it could be either. I can, see, I can see both arguments. There's a thi- there's this thing in, in Delta Green where it's like, oh, you know, it's so sanity blasting to find an alien and to learn that we're not alone. It's like, what if people just think that's fucking awesome? Like, what if I would hear about the Mountains of Madness? It's like, shit, I want to go there. I want to see the dead city. I want to yeah, see the elder true. things. I would argue that's still a form of sand lost <laughs> now. This is the greatest thing ever, and everyone has to know about it. So it, that kind of leads me to uh, something that I like to do, and this is not an original idea to me. I've seen it in a lot of games. I would much rather somebody puts their bonds very generically, like lover, coworker, uh, friend, and then allow them to draw on those bonds during the game for some reason. I know that I had, at Gen Con, I had a guy who was trying to figure out a clue that I'd given them involved the latitude longitude, and they were all stumped on it, so I kind of prompted him to, you know, his bond was pretty was pretty generic on the pre-gen. I said, you know, hey, you have a bond who, I think it was like, works for the government, and I was like, uh, you know, if you'd like, he could be like a signals analyst, and maybe he could help you with this. He's like, oh, yeah, cool, cool, let me let me call Billy, and then Billy was like, hey, idiot, it's obviously latitude long, why are you wasting my time with this? But I, I, I like giving the players those options to fill those in with when they need them because it gives them a fun little way to get out of a jam it's interesting you say that because i feel like you have some decent flavor to your characters and their bonds i'm thinking of one of you guys is i think an it technician for the foreign service and one of his bonds is his clan and eve online yeah well that's a little inside baseball though (laughs) oh fair enough but i'm also thinking like i'm also thinking of one of the npcs even from stop repo whose one of his bonds is his third uh graduate assistant turned wife yeah and and, uh agent saphir has has like candy stripper girlfriend and then like mandy other stripper girlfriend but that's a choice i I make and in in doing so i know that I, i then can't call on it'd be hard for me to be like well Candy the Stripper is actually an astrophysicist uh, major in college, and she would know that. This is the thing that happens with Bonds, where uh, the more realistic you make your Bonds, like the more grounded your character is in reality, the less useful they are. Because 
if your bonds are your friends and family, people who actually matter to you, then they're useless for any of that stuff you just described. Whereas if your bonds are like people at the agency or, you know, my friend at NASA, then suddenly you've opened up a whole new world of people who can help you with things. And it's like, it goes it goes back to how we never, no one ever uses official requisition in our games because it takes too long. No one ever uses get it from a bond because the bonds never have anything interesting. Because, <laughs> like, I work at, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, teach, uh, I teach freshman algebra in at the local university, or you know, I'm an accounts executive at Deloitte. Like, what that person is not going to be able to get you the main battle tank, or the the kilogram of C4, or the you know, 20 minutes of satellite co- coverage that you need. That is a good point, and that gets to the heart of the thing I'm looking for. Essentially, to what degree are your bonds someone your character seeks comfort from, as opposed to someone they seek support from on a mission? I think a good mix is healthy. I mean, I, I tend to make my bonds flavorful in, in a funny way because I know that mechanically all they are to me at is, is numbers that get lower so I lose less sanity. So therefore I want to make them, you know, a stripper girlfriend or third 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 teacher's assistant or whatever. So that's just more fun because I, I tend not to call on bonds for like mechanical things. But I do kind of encourage my players to do the opposite, which is just the weird reality we live in. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, I mean, I would jokingly, I think I'm a better handler than I am player <laughs> do as i gm not as i play any other thoughts on bond and putting them in danger yeah i don't think it's wrong it's uh just wrong completely to put bonds in danger because first of all if the player deliberately does it then fine because that's their decision but also it's one of those things like the hypothetical you know fbi raid during the home scene that i would not say is a good thing to do unless you have signposted it very clearly in the or given the players an opportunity or a, a hint that it was happening previously because one of the problems with games based around stealth and mysteries and so on is that it can be very difficult to make the consequences of the players actions clear to them or to make it clear what the stakes are and what's happening in the world around them and so then it can feel that the outcome of things is random or is coming as long out of as nowhere. the player has chosen to involve the bond as a handler you should go crazy and you should use that as much as you can but if you as a handler have chosen you know as i've said many times before either grab the player for an aside at a at a game and say hey so are you okay with this or at the end of the game give them a way to recoup that loss at least mechanically if not uh, role playing that's all we have for you this time follow us on facebook and on Twitter at 9mmretirement for the latest episodes of The Green Box and the cover-up with Brent Trent. You can also find us at Night at the Opera, a Delta Green open table on Discord and Reddit. You'll find links below in the show description. We'll be in touch, agents.